This is our last Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible, and we're going to be on page 860. If you have any questions, anything comes up in the course of the message today, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA and ask your questions there, and we will interact with those at the end this morning. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we um, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not uh, just adrift in the cultural sea that we live in, in our own intuition and emotional state, that we have a solid foundation in your word, that we can trust that you are true uh, and that you've given us this um, to help us build um, on. Uh, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our spiritual eyes this morning to what you have to say for us, how we should live, what we should believe, how we should act in the world. God, give us clarity and conviction and um, grace and love for one another and for all those that we meet. Just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've some of you guys, in, some of you in here are, are contractors and craftsmen, and you deal with um, construction regularly. I am I'm not that person, but I've done a little bit of it, and um, we built uh, we we had a home built uh, a couple years ago, and it was. Uh, it's a modular home that was built in a factory and shipped and, and it was assembled on site, but it didn't have a roof. And so it fell on me to build the roof. And in the process of building the roof, we had to get a, an inspection. We had to get a framing inspection for the, the, the trusses. And, and the first time the inspector came out, we failed the inspection because there's these little metal clips that needed to, their little L-shaped brackets that needed to attach to the uh, base plate in one of the trusses on the front of the house. And we hadn't installed them. And the logic behind them is that if the wind were to ever blow like hurricane force gale up against the side of the house, these little metal clips would reinforce the roof and prevent it from blowing off. And now the odds of that happening, I feel, are pretty slim. But that's the way building codes work. They figure out what's the worst possible thing that could happen and how can we mitigate against it. And so $8 worth of these little clips prevents, in theory, thousands of dollars worth of roof damage. So we put the clips in and it was fine. But last week in our discussion of the Lord's Prayer, we talked about praying, forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we said, like, we are sinners. We are broken people. And we talked about sin, and we talked about how to um, deal with sin and how God ultimately forgives us of our sin, that we have been forgiven in Christ for our sin. But this morning, the next line of the prayer, the last line of the prayer, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is the other side of that. It's, it's the side that says, you know what? Instead of getting forgiveness for sin, instead of making an insurance claim on a roof that flew away, how can we prevent sin in the first place? How can we add things into our lives so that we are equipped to stand against sin, to protect ourselves from sin, to not sin in the first place. And so as we finish the Lord's Prayer this morning, that's going to be what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking more about sin, but instead of the consequences of sin and, and the, the power of the grace of God and forgiving us of our sin, we're, today we're going to talk about how can we just avoid sin altogether? How can we not be people mired in sin. So the first question I think we need to ask is, where does sin come from? 
Sin, we talked about last week, is this, this brokenness, this, this way of going through life that um, goes against the grain of God's universe. And we all experience it in large and sp- small ways. But where does that actually come from? And the answer in the Bible is a phrase that you may have heard. It doesn't come directly from the scriptures, but it's often said, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And one place where we see this is in Ephesians chapter 2. We read, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, the devil. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So in this series of verses, Paul lays out three places where evil originates, the ways of the world, the ruler of the power of the air, and our fleshly desires, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what are these three things? The devil, maybe that's the easiest to understand. The devil is the head of this group of spiritual beings who are at war with God, who want to bring destruction and death to everything that they can. And that doesn't feel very modern to believe in spiritual powers of evil, but that's what the scriptures say. And in my experience, that's the reality of the world. We can't see the spiritual world around us, but the truth is there are living, non-material, evil intelligences that want to destroy you. And that's one place that sin comes from. The second is the flesh. So we have to be careful with this word because sometimes the flesh just means your body. When you're reading the Bible and um, Jesus says in Matthew 19, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Jesus there is talking about marriage, but when he uses the word flesh, he's just talking about human bodies. And human bodies are good. We are, we are created in God's image and we are created to be physical. And that's a good thing. But flesh can also be used to be describing the part of us that is distorted and broken by sin. Paul in Romans 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. So Paul isn't just talking about your body here. He's talking about this part of you that is outside relationship with Christ that wants to push against the way that the universe is meant to work, the way that God designed it. And this this thing, this impulse, it lives inside each one of us, the flesh. So what's the world? The world is another word that we have to be careful with. Sometimes um, the world just means the planet, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. So Paul there is just saying the creation of the world, that's the place that we live. Sometimes it's talking about the people. In John 3.16, famous verse, for God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I don't think Jesus here is directly talking about the planet. I do think he probably cares about the planet and we should care about the planet as well. But in this context, he's talking about the people of the world. God loved the world, the people, and he enacted a way that they might believe in him and be saved. But the world can also be a system of sin that operates between and among groups of people, and it magnifies human sin beyond the individuals involved. James warns us, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So according to James, there is this thing called the world that is out to pollute you. 
What is the lie that the world is telling us? David Wells says, Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. The world is the sort of thing that's just in the water of a society, something that that we don't question because, well, everybody just does it that way. It's why it took us so long to wake up to the fact that owning another human person is wrong. Well, slavery is just the way the world worked. If we got rid of it, it would be economic collapse, and, and it's always been this way. Many people were personally explicit in that sin, but many other people were just part of the culture, and that's the way we did it. It's why normal people attend events that become riots and then start throwing rocks and breaking windows and stealing stuff. It's not because they are a particularly evil kind of person. It's because the group moves with an evil that is greater than the sum of its parts. I'm going to give you two scriptural examples of this. In Genesis 11, we read, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. See, what's interesting about this story is God sees this wickedness and he doesn't punish them by destroying the individual people involved. He punishes them by disuniting their project. The thing that they were doing together, united, had a wickedness to it that was bigger than the individual's involved. Here's another slightly humorous example from Acts 19. Uh, At at this time, there was a major disturbance about the way, the the people of God. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. And when he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin." the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they all rushed together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that crazy? All of these people gather in this amphitheater to scream, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And later on, it says they scream for like two hours. And all these people, many of these people don't even know why they're there. Because there's something about this group that is bigger and greater in its evil than the individuals involved. So where does sin come from? It comes from all three of those places. John Mark Comer writes, the devil's primary stratagem to, divide the, to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. See what he says there? The devil creates deceptive ideas that play into disordered desires in my soul, which are normalized in a sinful society among all of us. So the idea that when we succumb to sin in any of those three ways, God forgives us, 
That's a hugely important part of the gospel. We sang about it this morning. We will continue to glory in that for as long as we live and into eternity. But as we pray this part of the prayer, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't want us to be people that settle for just being forgiven. We will need God's forgiveness until Jesus returns. But we don't have to sin. The same power that forgives our sin also empowers us to resist it. So if we are going to be people that resist sin from the world, the flesh, and the devil, we need to understand temptation. So what is temptation? Temptation is a draw towards sin. Temptation is at its base a lie about what is best for you. Think back to the very first temptation, the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes to Eve and tells this story that basically says, you know what? God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be wise. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you're going to get something so great, and he's keeping it from you. He's hiding it from you. That's the temptation. It's a lie. The life that you live is not the way it should be, and you have to take things into your own hands in order to get it. Temptation can come from the flesh. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. These verses don't say that riches are necessarily evil, but they do say that those that want to be rich are being tempted. And that should be a, probably a more serious warning for us than we take it to be, right? Because we live in a society that puts a lot of emphasis on us being wealthy. The desire for riches whether that's, you know, I'm only making 100 grand and I want to make 200 grand or I'm only making minimum wage and I want a dollar raise or whatever you fall on the spectrum, the temptation is based on a lie. If I had more money, I could whatever. I'd be happier. I'd be more successful. There'd be more joy in my heart. But that's a lie. That's not how it works. James says again in, in his letter, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. See, there's something inside of us that is broken, that wants things based on a lie that go against what God has designed for us. And this is what our culture is constantly pushing us towards. Think about going to the grocery store. You're in the checkout line. And what do you see? On one side, candy. Candy. You know what would make me happy right now? A Snickers bar. That's what I need. That would fulfill me. It's all junk. All of that stuff is bad for you, but oh, I like it. It's yummy. What's on the other side? Magazines. For me, maybe it's a men's magazine that says, you know what? This is, you can be stronger and sexier and smarter, and, and this is how to do it. And I, man, I wish I was that. I could be that. And then, you know, people would like me more, and I'd, I'd get, you know, I'd probably make more money too. And, or maybe it's the other magazines where you, these women are the most beautiful women in the world, and don't you wish you had one? Or maybe it's pride. These celebrities, their life is a mess. Aren't they silly? Aren't you proud that you're not as dumb as this celebrity couple whose life is falling apart right now? No matter what it is, it's based on a lie that you don't have something and you need it. And it's a temptation of the flesh. But temptation can also come from the world. Jesus prays in John 17, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The system of the world is something that we are called to interact with and yet not be affected by. 
We're told, Jesus says he doesn't want us to leave the world, to go separate and create our own little community away from the world. He wants us in the world as salt and light, but we're not supposed to be affected by it. We're supposed to be protected in it. And so how are we protected? By believing the truth, not believing lies. But the world is insidious because the world isn't just our own twisted desires telling us lies. It's everybody else telling us the same lies. Temptation from the world is difficult because we have peer support. See, we not only have to overcome our own desires, but we also have to stand against the desires of people around us. And whether you mean that or not, it often puts you in a place of critique against them. My very first job, I was 15 years old, and I got uh, hired at a local restaurant washing dishes. And um, it, was, it was an interesting job. I'd never done anything like that before. And there were all kinds of create, uh, interesting people there and uh, you know, wait staff and cooks. And one of the things that the cooks did was they posted uh, pornography in the break room. And it, it was just the thing that they did. And I was a 15-year-old Christian kid, and um, part of me was kind of okay with that. But the other part of me recognized that I shouldn't be looking at those kind of things. And so it would have been really easy to just go like, well, you know what? I'm at work. I work here. I'm, I, I'm on my break. It's just there. It's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. I didn't feel like I could do that. And so I, I ended up, I went to my manager and I, and I, I gave my notice. And, I, and she said, why? And I said, well, one of the reasons is I just don't feel comfortable with the kind of environment and the pornography in the break room. And she's like, oh no, I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll make them take it down. And like, I don't really want you to do that because that would put me in a really weird position of being you know, the guy that ratted out the cook's pornography in the break room. And, and it was a weird, tense situation because my saying, you know what, this isn't right for me, automatically judged the culture in that place. And I didn't mean to, I didn't want to, I just wanted to live up to the convictions that I held. But because this is what the world was doing, my standing against it was a critique of who they were. And oftentimes, as Christians, we are going to be called to an ethic, a system of values that goes exactly the other direction that our culture is telling us we should. And in those moments, it's more than just a personal struggle with desire, disordered desire. It's standing up against the peer pressure of everyone else doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing. But what about the devil? We can be tempted by the devil as well. We read in Genesis, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent, who later on we find out is the Satan or the devil, he tempts Eve. He, he plays into her disorder desires, but he directly lies to her about who she is and what God thinks of her. Fast forward to the life of Jesus, Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is directly confronted by the devil who lies to get him to sin. And, and now he doesn't sin. He passes the test. But the reality for us, and this is the part that we, I think, have the hardest time with as um, 21st century Westerners, is that there is a real spiritual power out there that wants to destroy you. And the devil isn't God's opposite. It's not like the yin and the yang. It's, it's not like, um, you know, the light side and the dark side of the force. Who's going to win, the Jedi or the Sith? The devil is a created being. He's very powerful by our standards, but he's nothing compared to Yahweh and his son, Jesus. The devil doesn't know everything. 
The devil can't be more than one place at a time. I don't think personally the devil can read your thoughts. And the devil's power is limited to what God allows him to do. But the devil has an army of fallen angels or demons or however you want to classify them. And they are these evil powers all around the world doing their best to create rebellion, violence, and death wherever they go. And I have a theory about that, and, and this is just me speaking. I don't have a, a verse for this. But, but I just wonder if when we look out into the world and we see just horrifying things, when we see the sexual abuse of children, when we see war crime and terror and uh, serial killers and just awful things, I just can't help but wonder if that just has to be the demonic at work. And I wanna, I wanna say that yes, there's mental illness and there's chemical imbalances. Physically, those are real things. But temptation from the demonic is real. And I think it's probably more prevalent than we think it is. And I have to assume that when stuff goes so sideways that we just can't imagine how a human person could act that evil, that there has to be something else driving that. The devil and his armies are intent on killing, stealing, and destroying. And I think we see that in the world. The primary weapon of the demonic world still is the lie. It's to convince someone that what they need to do is go against the way God would have them live their lives. I was listening to a a story a, a pastor was telling uh, about a man who had a pornography addiction. And he'd come into the office and he just, it was, it was to the point where it was going to destroy his marriage. And he was just talking through his mental state with this pastor. And he just, just kind of casually mentioned the voice in his head that tells him how worthless he is and how he has to go use pornography. And the wise pastor was like, do you, where do you think that voice is coming from? And they talked through it a little bit more, and, and he ended up delivering this man from the power of a demon. Because there was more than just his disordered desires. It was there. He had broken, sinful, lustful desires in his heart, but the demonic power was using that and twisting that and lying to make him do what he didn't want to do. It was still sin. He was still liable for it, but the demonic was the source of that temptation. So temptation can come from our flesh, it can come from the world, and it can come from the devil. So when we read, when we pray, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, well, then there's, there's questions. Because what is... What is God's role in temptation and what is the evil one's role? If temptation to sin comes from the world and the flesh of the devil, what exactly are we praying for in this line of the prayer? It seems like we're praying that we wouldn't be tempted to sin, that God would protect us from those kinds of things. But it gets complicated when we start thinking about it. I want to read you Matthew 4.1 again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay. Is that still on the screen? Who is responsible for Jesus' temptation? The devil or who else? The Spirit, right? Like the Spirit of God puts Jesus into this place where the devil is going to tempt him. What do we do with that? I'm going to give you another example. In the book of Job, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and surely he will curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And we, we won't continue reading, but a lot of terrible stuff happens to Job. So same question, who's responsible for that? Is that Satan or is that God who said, hey, Satan, you should go look at Job? Who do we blame for this? Satan actually harms Job, but God gives his permission. To further complicate things, we read in the book of James, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So what's going on here? So I I think as we look at the whole record of Scripture and what it says about temptation, we can be confident that God will never try to get you to do an evil thing. He just doesn't do that. It, It would go against his character. He is good. He is holy. He loves us. And he's not gonna dangle some illicit thing in front of you in the hopes that you would take it. He's not sadistic. But he will put you in a position where you will be tempted and have the opportunity to make the right or the wrong choice. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also provide you the way out so you may be able to. To bear it. Sometimes this verse is kind of truncated to say God won't give you more than you can handle. That is not true. God will always give you more than you can handle because he wants you to rely on him. But when you are tempted to sin, whether it's by the world, the flesh, the devil, maybe all three, if you are a Christian, you have the power of God's Holy Spirit living inside you and he is strong enough that you can overcome that temptation. You are not a slave to sin. You don't have to sin. And this is something I think we get wrong in the church because we talk a lot about us, our sinfulness, and we should. We should recognize that we are broken people and that it is by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are adopted in his family, by his goodness, by his, his cross, we are healed, Right? But if you are not a Christian here this morning, and I don't know all of you, and I don't know who's watching on the internet, if you have not given your life to Jesus, given your allegiance to Jesus, and repented from your sins, the Bible says that you are a slave to sin. There is. That doesn't mean that every possible wickedness under man is something that you're going to do, but there are going to be situations where you do not have the power in yourself to resist sin. But if you're a Christian here this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, and you have been empowered to resist sin. Doesn't mean we always do it. We're always, we always want to be repentant people. We want to recognize that, like, my week has been rough, and there's been some things that I've said to my family, and there's been some thoughts that I've had, and there's been some things that I've looked at, and whatever else, we mess up. Our disordered desires are still here until Jesus comes back and makes everything new. But in the moment of temptation, because you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, you can overcome temptation and not sin. So what do we do with this prayer? Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why would God allow temptation in our lives? And why are we asking him not to? 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. 
Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? See, there's a long passage, but Peter says here that being tested, standing up against temptation is suffering, and that suffering connects you to Jesus. That there is something about being placed in a place of temptation and resisting that temptation as hard as it is that identifies you with your Savior, because that's exactly what he did. James again says, consider it great joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James says when we're tempted, when we're tried, when things are hard, when we suffer, we should rejoice because we are being matured. My daughter, Karis, has is, is just turned 16, and she's got her learner's permit, and uh, we've been driving, which is exciting. And uh, the very first time she drove, I took her out to the, the old Shopco parking lot in the, on the middle of a Sunday evening, and I put her in the driver's seat, and I gave her the keys. And, you know, it was an empty parking lot, and it was fine, but... <laughs> But she had never driven a car. She had no idea how the pedals were supposed to feel or how much pressure you had to put on the wheel to get the, the steering wheel to get the wheels to turn or, or how, how the, uh, the shifter worked or any of those things. She just had never experienced that before. And she was a little freaked out by it. But we got through it. And then she went to driver's ed and she learned some stuff. And she's a real, she's a real studious uh, person. So she's like memorized the driver's handbook. So that's great when I'm driving now. They says, oh yeah, you shouldn't do that. That's illegal. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but she's still learning. And so we take this opportunity to drive together. And, and it's usually me because um, her, her mother gets a little, a little anxious. <laughs> and, I, and it's interesting sitting in the passenger seat with her driving, and she pulls into the turn lane and turns left onto the freeway and just floors it on the on-ramp and looks over, and there's a semi-truck coming, and she's like merging and doing the things. And I'm sitting there going like, we could die. Like, <laughs> we, just, we could just be, this could be the end of it right now. And, and that's true, I guess. She's a good driver. But the reality is like, Karis will never be able to drive unless she drives, right? Like she's never, no amount of like reading the manual is going to prepare her for the experience of navigating traffic and, and dealing with those things. Even if, and then she feels it too, even if she's anxious and nervous and scared, she just has to do this if she's going to get better. Testing and tempting and trials, these are good things because God is using them to make us more mature. So again, if that's true, why would we pray, do not bring us into temptation and deliver us from the evil one? And here's what I think. I read a lot of opinions about this this week, and um, here's my best guess. I'm going to tell you another story. Uh, when I was, man, like 20 years ago, I'm so old, I just, <laughs> Joanna and I had just gotten married, and we, had, we were at a gym, and uh, I was working out on the, um, the bench press, but the, it was the bench press where the bar is in that little that little rig, so it, it can't go back and forth. It just goes up and down. But it's still, it'll go down. And I put 
an amount of weight on the bench press that I felt I could lift. And I did, one time. And then it came down, and I couldn't get it up. And then I thought, well, this is the end of my life. I'm going to, <laughs> this is going to slowly constrict my airway, and it'll be the end of it. And uh, thankfully, uh, another guy in the gym came up, and he took one hand, and he grabbed the bar, and he lifted it up off of me, which was super embarrassing. Uh, and I'm not dead. <laughs> but the reality was, that test, that trial, that opportunity I was taking to strengthen my muscles, it was more than I could handle. It was more than I was capable of. And if I had been working with a trainer or somebody that could tell me that, I would have known that that was too much weight for me right then. And what I think this part of the prayer is doing is it's getting us to admit our weakness and asking for God's mercy on us. Because ultimately, He knows best what we can or cannot handle, what will make us stronger, and what will cause us to stumble. And by praying this prayer, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think we are giving that process of our training in Christ-likeness over to Him with the realization that we, on our own, are unable to conquer temptation. But when we are given trials that He puts in front of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us will overcome them. And we will grow. So that's what I think that part of the prayer is about. So before we end, uh, there's one other part of the prayer. And um, you may have noticed, depending on the Bible you have, it reads, for yours is the kingdom and the, glory, the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is called the doxology, the end of the prayer. Now, if you have a pretty modern translation of the Bible, if you're using the Christian standard Bible like we have in the pews and that I preach from, it's not in there. Now, the reason it's not in there is super complex, but I'm going to give you kind of the, the Cliff Notes version. Our English Bibles come from a bunch of different Greek manuscripts. These are handwritten documents that were written originally in the first century, and then as they wore out and as the gospel spread around the Roman Empire, they were copied. And they were copied over and over and over and over and over again. And we have thousands of them. And the way Bible translators today decide what the original text of the scriptures were is they lay out these thousands of manuscripts and they figure out how old they are. And they make decisions about this manuscript of Matthew and that manuscript of Matthew. And this manuscript says this thing, which is a little bit different than this one, but this one is older, so it's probably closer to the original. And so we'll go with that one. And it's a really complicated process, and um, it's, I think it's fascinating. But Bible translators are doing the work of determining what the original was based on all of the copies that we have. And if it scares you to think that there's all these copies and there's changes and stuff, it's like 0.1% of the content of the scriptures has changed in all of these copies. And nothing major that we have in our Bibles is not there in the ancient manuscripts. And the fact that we have literally thousands of them helps us figure out what the originals were. So what does this have to do with the last line of the prayer? So there's, there's two kinds of changes in, in, in manuscripts where, where sometimes the scribe who has the copy that he's copying in a blank piece of parchment, he's going to go letter by letter, and he's just going to write back and forth. And it's a professional person called a scribe that's whose job it is to do this because there's no printing press, there's no copy machine. And sometimes something will happen. They'll, you know, the, they'll get called away or, or they'll just be tired or whatever, and maybe they'll miss a letter or they'll skip a line. And so when you have a thousand manuscripts of Matthew and one of them is missing a line, you can go like, oh, that was an error. That scribe messed that up. And so we know because of these other things that that happened that way. That's called an unintentional change. There's other changes in manuscripts that are called intentional changes. And this is when the scribe actually does something to the text on purpose. And when 
Bible translators look at the text of Matthew, they think this is what's happened. If you have a King James translation or a new King James translation, it will say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Because in that Bible translation, which comes from uh, a Bible that was translated 400 years ago, the scholars back then only had a few texts of Matthew to go on. And in those texts that were from the Middle Ages... This line was in there. Well, since then, we've uncovered in the ground, in tombs, in jars, lots more texts of Matthew that are much, much older, much closer to the original. And we see these older texts, they don't have that line in them. And so the the thought is, somewhere along the line, the scribe added, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, into the Lord's prayer. So why did he do that? That seems inappropriate, right? And the reason is, that's what the Christians were praying. It comes from a place in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29, David says, "'Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name.'" And so based on that kind of language in the Old Testament, the churches started adding these doxologies to their prayers. And we know that this is true because um, we have one of them. There's a, a book called the Didache. It's also called the Instruction of the Apostles. And it was written in about the year 100. So like the next generation after the apostles. And it's a manual for running a church. And in the Didache, in chapter 8, we read, pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be holy, may your kingdom come, may your will be done as in heaven, so also upon earth. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as also we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one because yours is the power and the glory forever. Pray in this way three times each day. And so you can see it's a little different. It doesn't say the word kingdom, but this very, very early document from the very first Christians lets us know that they were adding this doxology to the Lord's Prayer. And this tradition of doing this started really early on in the tradition. And so somewhere along the way, a scribe just added it to the bottom of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew because that's probably what he prayed three times a day. So, if it's not really in the text of Matthew, why would we want to add it when we pray it together? There's two reasons. I think one, it's one of the things that puts us in alignment with the Christian's that have gone before us. And you'll, you'll hear me talk about this whenever I can. I, I said it this morning when we talked about Julian of Norwich. I want us to be deeply aware that we are not the only people following Jesus. Not only are there millions or potentially billions of us around the world worshiping Jesus today, we are part of a 2,000-year history of men and women who have given their lives to Christ. And I want us to be aware of that. And so if the early Christians were adding the doxology to the Lord's Prayer, it 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 seems good to me. But it does something more than that, and that's the second reason why I think it's valuable to say the doxology. It reorients our hearts away from ourselves and back to God. Listen to these things that we prayed for. Help me honor your name as holy. Bring your kingdom to the earth. Give us our daily necessities. Forgive us of our sins. Protect us from temptation. These are all requests, right? And we should be asking God for things. It's right and good to ask God for these things. But at the end of the prayer, the doxology reminds us that the whole life we live, our whole existence, the whole universe is about God. And that God himself should be the primary focal point of our lives. Wesley Hill in his book on the Lord's Prayer says it like this. This is what the final phrase of the Lord's Prayer means to direct us toward. There is coming a time when we will have no more need to ask God for bread, for forgiveness, 
or for rescue. All of our tears will have been wiped away. Death will have finally been defeated. And the earth and its people will be at peace and thriving. Petitions will not be necessary in God's future. We will cease asking God to supply our needs since we will be entirely satisfied. All that will remain is to praise God and enjoy his benevolent reign, to rejoice in what his power has achieved and to see his glory. Let it be so, which is what amen amounts to, is the only appropriate response to these promises. So, that's the Lord's Prayer. Spent five weeks going through it. We're going to continue to open our gatherings with it as a, as a means of, of solidarity with the church of history and because I think Jesus told us we should, most importantly. And I would encourage you to pray it in your own devotional life. Again, if, if you struggle with prayer, I know many of us do, the Lord's Prayer is there to be prayed. And so if you cannot come with words to pray, just, just pray that. That's what Jesus told us to do. Maybe pray it three times a day, like the Didache says. It's meant to be prayed, and I think as we pray it, as we make it a part of the rhythm of our life, as we internalize these things that we're asking the Lord to do, I think He will answer them, and I think our, the depth of our relationship with Christ will grow. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.